0: So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Hi, I hope you're having a good week. We've had a busy week.
1: Bloody hell, we say that every week though, don't we? Yeah, I think all weeks are busy, but... They're fun, so it's fine. Yeah, Yeah, we did a really good talk last night at Republic. Thanks to everyone who came down to that. It was cool to see you guys there. Yeah, that was really cool. And we did uh, another one last week, which was uh, for
0: the Authentic Project. And that was amazing as well.
1: Yeah, really nice to be part of a panel there as well. Like really good bunch of people, really engaging audience. And it was great to chat to people after as well. I think I had a really good time actually meeting so many people after and just being able to give them some good advice. It was cool.
0: Yes, and what has been happening is people have been contacting us and asking us to speak at their places of work. This is a thing that we will do. We do charge money for it, but if you would like the Creative Rebels to come and talk to your workplace about our journey, we call it a lunch and learn. So if you'd like us to come in and talk to your team about what we do, and the journey that we've been on then we are fully up for doing that so get in touch connect at rebelscreate.com is the email we're actually off to do one of those this afternoon at Battersea Dogs and Cats Home
1: it should be really fun that's gonna be amazing yeah and I'm glad you said Battersea Dogs and Cats Home because a lot of people forget the cat's home they just say dog's home and yeah my friend used to work there so it's been drilled into me
0: are we going to be able to play with any animals Or do you think they're just going to
1: whisk us in we'll have to talk and then get out? I've been there before to play with the animals and it was very
0: fun. Yeah, I want to do that.
1: Next week, we'll let you know if we played with kittens all day and didn't do any talking. (laughs) Someone messaged us this week saying, should I start a podcast?
0: Yeah, unfortunately they didn't make it down to the, the event that we did that was all about podcasting. But um, but yeah, they've got kind of a, the startings of an idea, but I wasn't yeah. sure whether to go through with that. Yeah,
1: I think starting a podcast is interesting because if you're going to do it, you need to make sure that first you've got the time to do it because it does take up quite a lot of time. And just kind of work out, is it the best avenue for you? Like if your time's really limited and you've got a very visual company maybe instagram's better to put your time into but podcasting is a great tool for networking and for growing an audience and growing a community yeah and and super rewarding like i mean we've just got a new lease on life since we've been doing this
0: just it's just energizing us i guess and it's making us like focus more on our on our work work mm-hmm. with having this as kind of the fun thing on the side where we talk about our work work It's interesting. So yeah, when you say about time there, it's really interesting. So one of the the people I spoke to last night, we'd given the advice of make sure you batch all your all of your episodes. Yeah. So you've got like five or six episodes in the can. So there's never like super stress of you to have to get an episode out. And someone came to me at the end and was like, uh, yeah, love what you said about doing batching. I'm doing a current affairs podcast. And it's like, Uh.
1: oh. Shit, yeah. So, yeah, so I think if you decide you want to do a podcast on something like Current Affairs, you're going to need to have the time to do it. You can't... Yeah. You Be prepared for it to yeah. take over your life. And if you're doing it on your own, then that makes it a lot easier than doing it with someone else if they're not with you every day. So like, fortunately for us, we're both in the office every day together. So if we need to go and record an intro, record a bit of something here and there, we can just nip into our studio and just start recording. Whereas I've got friends who live miles away from each other and co-host a podcast. So for them to get together is a real effort. And if you're reliant on guests being available at a certain time, that can become a real issue. Definitely. I think it comes down to desire, really.
0: It comes down to like really, really wanting. If you've got like a burning need to put this out into the world, then you'll find time to do it. Yeah. And as we... I don't think we've ever discussed this on the show before. As as we know, the average podcast lasts only seven episodes before most people give up. And I think the reason that that is is because for those initial few weeks when it's new and exciting and fresh it's it's easy to put the content out but after that when it starts to become a grind and especially if no one's tuning into your show yeah. it's really hard to keep the momentum going after that point
1: yeah especially if you're if the time you're putting into it isn't giving you any rewards yeah how long can you keep going before that just Completely demotivates you and you just stop.
0: Because I mean, we always set this this podcast up to help our audience. You who are listening to us right now, that's why we made this, is so that we could help you. And we didn't even realise the kind of side effect of the opportunities that would pop up for us. Yeah. Which is insane. And we're like hugely grateful for that. And I suppose that just comes from the more value you provide to people the more on
1: different radars you pop
0: up on because they're like oh these guys really helped me because i'm doing this this and this
1: yeah starting a podcast is really good for meeting people and networking if you don't necessarily have an in with someone or you don't have a a skill that you can offer someone in exchange for their time by doing a podcast that's a great way to be able to get people to interview and, and make those kind of industry connections yeah definitely
0: welcome to all of
1: the new listeners
0: because a bunch of new people found us last week probably because brandon is a an incredible guest and b has such a a loyal audience that um kind of came and listened to his show straight away which affected our rating in the in the us itunes chart
1: because most of his uh his audience are from the States. Yeah. And if you are a new listener, what we'd like to say to people is if you've got any questions that you want answering on the show or just just to help you directly, just drop us a message on Instagram at rebelscreate and we're happy to help. Yeah, at rebelscreate on Instagram. You can also find us on Twitter. I am at DavidSpeedUK
0: and Adam is... At AdamBrazierUK. We love to hear from you guys. It's what is what keeps us going. It's what keeps us producing the show every week. So... Another person who's got a podcast Adam is this week's guest. His name Tore. His name is Tore. Tore is a writer, a journalist, a podcaster and has published 5 books. He's interviewed icons like Rihanna, Zadie Smith, Tiffany Haddish, Wu-Tang, Santi Gold, Travis Scott, Biggie Smalls and Lady Gaga plus loads loads more. It's insane the amount of people like the amount of just legendary people that he's that he's been in rooms with and and had deep long conversations with we actually learned loads about interviewing from tore and he was like just so kind like invited us to his um, apartment in brooklyn which is just a beautiful spot yeah that bookcase oh amazing so many amazing books it was incredible yeah, he he spent time off mic, kind of giving us interviewing tips, which was so useful, and I think has really helped us kind of moving forward. Yeah, because yeah, learning from an absolute pro. If you're a writer, we strongly recommend that you check out his new podcast, which is called Free MFA, uh, which is basically all the info that you'd get from a uni course, except it's free. And uh, yeah, if you're a writer, check that one out.
1: This episode we talk about Kanye West getting fired and believing in yourself.
2: Nobody is ever going to believe in you more than you. Maybe if you're lucky, your mom will believe in you more than you. But outside of that, like, if you don't believe in you and your capabilities and your product 100%, then you have nothing.
0: Hi, Tori. Hi. How are you? Good. Thank you for doing our podcast.
2: I'm happy to be here. What's your favorite song? My favorite song, maybe Bam Bam by Sister Nancy. It's one of those few songs that there's a lot of agreement within the genre that this is the best song of all time. I just thought that I just loved it immensely and lots of other people who love Dancehall love it immensely. I saw some ranking and one of the you know, elitist music blogs, but greatest dance hall songs of all time. And that was like, well, of course, Sister Nancy. And I was like, oh, well, it seems, everybody seems to agree, like, Tiger's the best golfer of all time, right? There's very few things that, like, you know, Richard Pryor's the best stand up of all time. Like, there's very few things that's like, everybody kind of agrees on that. And like, that song is kind of dominated the dance hall space. What, what does it mean, TA? It's just a vibe. It just, it just sort of soaks into you. Uh, you know, it's not about like the meaning of the song. It's just this incredible sort of engulfing sound that sort of just goes in through the chest, not even through the ears and just like, it's not even like about something that's like, yay. It's, she's just like, you know, I'm doing my thing. You know, she said it was improvised. She did it in, like, 20 minutes or something. It's, it's, it's just an amazing little piece. Yeah, it's perfect, isn't
0: it? Yeah. It's
2: but, I mean, like, you know, my, my taste, you know, my favorite song in the world changes. I mean, this yeah, is, yeah, this yeah. is, like, you know historical for me but you know my daughter is 10 and she's way into music and like when I get excited about a song and I'll be like I got a new song it's like super excited about at last night for some reason the um, Lizzo song Juice just freaking hit me over the head and I was like oh my god that song's amazing
0: yeah I, I a song like struck me like that recently which is um bad guy by Billie Eilish I mm. think that's the best pop song written in the last 10 years I feel like we've, especially with pop, there's there's been a kind of an epidemic of where the, the beat has been more important than the
2: actual, the lyrics and the message. And well, I listen mostly to hip hop, mostly. And, you know, the lyrics are dominant, you know? I mean, quite often hip hop will be a fairly static backing track. The song, general, outside of like Travis Scott and Kanye, the song doesn't like change or have modes. Like you lay down a beat, and then and then the rapper comes and does his thing. As opposed to, you know, a rock song which may have a different part, an entirely different part in the middle, or the you know, I mean, like a song like "Sicko Mode" by Travis Scott really changes hip hop in that it's like three entirely different pieces, and hip hop doesn't usually challenge the listener in that particular way we challenge listener in different ways i do sort of miss that the way that rock and some other genres jazz of course will like really play with the form and not that hip-hop doesn't hip-hop plays with the form immensely but it's generally like once you enter a song this like the song itself generally does not like we have a beat and then the rapper raps over it as opposed to In the middle of the song, it was like a whole different song started. And then we went back to, but Kanye and Travis are good about doing that shit. I like that shit. Your
0: parents' musical, because I guess music is really important to you.
2: Yeah, music is super important to me. No, my parents are not musical in terms of playing. My mom would put on music in the house all the time. And, you know, Motown stuff meant a lot to her and a lot of the sort of, what we would now call like soft rock, like Paul Simon and Wings. She really liked that sort of stuff. Um, Marvin Gaye was a, was big for her. Diana Ross was big for her, Stevie Wonder. It wasn't, it wasn't so much from them as like, I'm witnessing the rise of hip hop. I remember Rapper's Delight coming on the radio and being like, what the fuck is that? Mm. I think I was 10 and it was like, that's different and the rapping itself was not revolutionary i'd heard rapping but the whole song is rapping like you'd heard like pieces like Mm. people would slip into syncopation for a moment but the whole song like whoa and i remember sort of like it's growing like Oh, there's another song like that. And then I had a I had a cassette that had like a bunch of songs like that. It had uh, the show and Lottie Dottie on it. And then I'm able to... I remember going into this record store that was probably smaller than this apartment that was a couple doors down from my father's accounting firm in, in Boston. And uh, the cassette section, they were all cassettes mainly then... And the cassette section for rap was smaller than the one for dance hall, which was not a big section in itself. So the (laughs) rap section was really small. And the guy knew my dad and he was really cool. Um, So he, it was called Skippy Whites. And he allowed me alone as a 10, 11, 12 year old to take cassettes and not pay for them till after I had listened. So if I liked it, I could pay oh. for it and keep it. If I didn't like it, then I could give it back. So that allowed me to feel comfortable just trying all the rap cassettes that he had. So I would like, well, let me let me try that one. Let me just look at the cover and like, that looks cool, I'll try that one. And you started to get into it more and more. I remember when De La Soul came out, I was like, oh, I have not felt fully in it like I didn't realize I had felt like I'm an observer of this culture even though I felt like this is very much me I been, and then when De La Soul came around I was like that is me in hip-hop like I am suburban I am I remember more I am not hard at all you know I'm not urban even though I love that culture that is what I am and then A Tribe Called Quest, when I was like later in high school like that is what I am in this so that sort of like pulled me in more because I never ever thought about actually doing it myself it never occurred just even like for my friends or just hanging out like well you rap like that's for like New Yorkers Mm -hmm. from the hood (laughs) like big tough smart guys like It never even occurred to me to try to write a rap. That was something other people did. Oh, God, I remember... I think this is, like, the second major moment of my development of hip-hop, because I had heard Rapper's Delight and was like, oh, that was wild. And my dad was big into tennis, but not any white tennis community. He was in, like, the black urban tennis community in the hood in Boston. And I remember... I just remember him being at a tournament. Some guy saying to me, "You haven't heard the message, and like, like you gotta hear the message. Like, oh my god! Like, and like, okay." Then when I went and found that and heard that, it was like, oh shit! Because I mean, you know, Rappers Delight was cool, but it's like a party record. Mm, yeah. The message it, it gives you a vision of what hip hop will become. And here we have, you know, a discussion of what's going on in the world, reality, the problems of the world, discussed in a really interesting way. That was like super cool. Then I was like, okay, now, now we're getting it. Like now this I love. Because hip hop's changed your country completely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it has changed the country. Absolutely. I mean, it is, I think, clearly the dominant musical subculture mm. of the last several decades and country fans may say well we have more raw listeners but I don't think country definitely not rock definitely not r I mean hip-hop has been this overwhelming force and I remember seeing it sort of go from like it's a musical culture to then it grows into clothes, into advertising, into sneakers. I mean, I remember there was a time when only athletes had sneakers and advertised sneakers. And then it became like, well, rappers can have a sneaker, too, and they can design them. And, yeah, it's been extraordinary discovering, you know, Rapper's Delight and The Message to then, like, the Pillsbury Doughboy Right. It's kicking a little rhyme and the freaking (laughs) Kool-Aid man is bursting through the wall with a gold chain on. And I mean, you know, Run DMC meant so much to me because I went to this I went to this school where this this big private school where like, you know, you can't like leave the camp and the campus is multiple acres. You can't leave campus in the middle of the day because the campus was multiple acres. You you literally could leave the campus at low risk, but God forbid you were caught, like you could get expelled. Yeah. But the day that Tougher Than Leather came out, you know, I had a little car. I was just old enough to drive myself to school. I left school, went to Skippy White's and bought it, the the, the purple and green cover. I was blasting that for a while. Um, my My first
0: encounter with hip hop I, I was ten as well, and it was um, "Step Into a World" KRS mm, One, mm. and just hearing that and going, "What? The, what is this?" Like, had such... hadn't heard anything like
2: That's it. It's such a powerful record and such an incendiary record, and it like has such a great sort of wind up, right? This long like singing part when the beat drops it's like, "Oh wow!" and I'm not saying I'm number one. Oh, sorry, I lied. I'm <laughs> number one, two, three, four, and
0: five. Oh, man. Like,
2: boom. I knew that girl. Um, I mean, I didn't know know her, but she was a roommate of of a good friend of mine. Um, it was like, yo, she's on like a record. Like, really? Like, yeah, like a big record. And I worked with KRS for several years on his autobiography, which did not come out for whatever reason. But... Um, that's pretty thrilling. I very
0: nearly worked with him a couple of years ago. His management got, got in contact and uh, I was supposed to be painting a portrait of him on stage whilst he was performing, which would have been like
2: a career highlight. Amazing. Amazing. He is one of the best performers in hip hop.
0: I was on the train on the way there and got an email for them cancelling. Like you couldn't tell me the day before. Like, I was literally on the way.
2: Did you go to the show anyway? No.
0: <laughs> no. Turned my shit around and Fuck went home. You. yep Would have
2: yeah. been a good show so, anyway, but, um, Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm sure. So now that you're, <laughs> like, obviously growing up, idolizing these people, how wild was it to then start being around them? And
2: Oh, it's yeah. quite heavy. Um, the first feature I did was Run DMC for Rolling Stone. I was able to calm down the, whatever, nerves and the feeling of, like, oh, my God, it's Run and D and J. And just, like, do the job. But it was definitely heavy. And I recall being in the office at Profile with the three of them sitting on the couch. And it was the first—one of the first times I had really done an interview. And I kind of just knew how to do it. Like, I had done a few interviews before, but not a lot. But I kind of just—nobody from the magazine gave me any advice— I just kind of knew how to do it. And I remember just getting them all amped up and asking them questions. And they were, it was a very high level of energy through the whole interview. And you know, when it was over, Run stood up and he said, dope interview. And he walked out I was <laughs> like, And then he read the story and I ran into him at the Apollo and he was like the story was dope and I'm like oh my god I can die now he like <laughs> I felt more the immensity of the responsibility you have an hour or a day or whatever it is with you know Run-DMC or whoever it is the Jungle Brothers whatever you got to make that time work you know there's a ton of other people who want to talk to you x rapper or whatever singer like you better take that time seriously and like you know make it yeah. freaking rock cuz you know you can't just be like hey um i didn't get i mean like you can ask for a secondary interview but like just the sense of responsibility of taking this time really seriously and making it really work for me and them and like valuable that that pervaded the sense of responsibility over this moment. You know, I grew up watching hip hop be portrayed in media in a way that was unfortunate, biased, racist at times, wrongheaded quite. And so as a young black reporter, it was like, well, you know, I have to tell the story right. You know, there's a lot of responsibility for getting the story correct, which does not mean being an apologist for hip hop, but getting it correct. I remember this one writer had written a story for Rolling Stone about Ice Cube when I was too green to be able to get that level of assignment. And he had written about Ice Cube using the phrase 5,000 right remember do you remember when that was popular there was a time when that was, when we like to say goodbye you would say 5000g right i don't think that reached london there no, <laughs> no so yeah so that was the, that was the slang 5000 meant meant um, i'm out and in the story the writer said you know we don't know where this came from and i'm like that's ridiculous we absolutely know where this came from it was outy 5000 Right, the, That phrase predated 5,000, right? So it's, I think there was a movement from Audi to Audi 5,000 to 5,000, right? Like that was sort of the, and it's like, we absolutely know where this comes from. Like, and, but because you are white and you don't really know yeah. the culture, you say, I, we don't know. And there was a story about Snoop and Dre that I remember feeling like it treated them in a sort of alien othering sort of way. And it was always sort of my mission as a writer to not not other them, to not treat them as weird or alien, um, but to really understand them and treat them as serious and as human beings with families and feelings and intelligence. A lot of people seem to approach rappers as if they were dumb. So then of course you're gonna get dumb answers if your opening thesis is this person is dumb. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do something different. So from the beginning, it was like, how do we bring more humanity and a sense of intelligence to these people I'm covering? So from the beginning of covering of Run DMC or Jungle Brothers or whoever, it was like, how do we bring out their humanity, take them super seriously? Um, I remember once I did an interview with a, a Florida rapper named Plies. And this is like, This had to be in like the double O's. Yeah. You know, typical Southern rapper, you know, a lot of people ascribe no intelligence to him. I remember tweeting, you know, I'm interviewing Plies tomorrow, you know, you know, what questions should I ask Mm -hmm. him? And I would quite often say that. And then you get like a bunch of jokes and it's like, I don't need your stupid jokes. (laughs) You know, so I had tagged it with like, you know, like serious questions only. And you know, like, I don't want your stupid jokes. Like I've heard them, they're stupid. A bunch of people tagged that as like, that's ridiculous. Like serious questions for plies, that's ridiculous. And I wasn't saying that I want to talk to him about like, you know, abstractionism or nuclear war, whatever, but like I just don't want your stupid jokes. And I went into the interview as I do all of them, assuming his intelligence, treating him as intelligent, expecting him to give me intelligent answers. And at a previous time, He had pointed to somebody in the audience and said, I'm going to give you a college scholarship. So I asked him why he... First, I asked him if he really followed through on that, and he said he did. And then I said, well, why did you do that? I think a lot of people would not ask, why did you do that? Mm -hmm. And we got into a discussion about his grandmother, who had said, like, well, you have all this money now, but what are you doing with it? And if you're just wearing it, then that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. And so it was like... Okay, to show my grandmother that I'm doing more than just flossing, which was not a term that was used then, Um, uh, I gave a college scholarship to this girl. So it's like, wow, like that's like your family, you know, your intelligence, your heart, um, you know, like there's so much to that little story. So that's just what I've always tried to do within this.
0: Do you think the, the othering is still pervasive?
2: Now you have a, ge- a generation, two or three generations of people who have grown up idolizing or respecting rappers. So the notion of of assuming that they're dumb, I think that is far less among millennials than it was among the younger boomers who were writing about hip-hop when it was first coming up. Um I I think The vast majority of millennials Approach hip-hop In a highly respectful way And they're like This is serious culture This is important culture You know Whereas the first 10 years 12 years 15 years Of, of media coverage of it Was like Frightened Quite often Not always But quite often you know, <laughs> Pearl clutching Oh my god What is this um, And uh I think there's less of that now.
0: I met a young man the other day who is doing an incredible project in the UK. Um, It's called 56 Black Men. And he has um, taken these, these beautiful portraits of 56 black men wearing hoodies it's an exploration and i mean it's gone it's gone crazy like he's been doing interviews on like sky news and bbc and he's created a movement and it's really taken off i um, C Fast williams he's called he's really interesting he basically he's doing this to illustrate that because a, a lot of the men that he's photographed in this series are doctors or lawyers or mm-hmm. perceived professions by society that are of high value right and it's this exploration of if you you put a black man in a hoodie then there's fear or mistrust behind that i feel like what you're you're doing with your show is really important because you're you're giving a platform to to black people how are you using your platform to to portray black people and celebrate culture yeah
2: i mean the genesis the core of toray show is about finding out why these people became successful and what it is that they did that you might be able to replicate for you to become successful. How'd you develop as a singer? How do you work as an actor? I don't know even, I don't even always want to know your rise story. I'm like, you are a master now. How do you look at things now? One of the questions that I really like talking to people about is what is the difference between being good and great at your profession cuz like bad and good or great is easy to see but like what's the difference between being a good actor and a great actor and that gets to nuance and subtlety and just sort of why it is that I have been successful and I I wanted it to be inspiring I wanted to again take black people and black creators really seriously as people and as humans and as artists, you know, like really dig into why they became successful. A lot of people talk about really knowing yourself. A lot of people talk about, you know, morning routines that really propel them into the day. A lot of people talk about really loving your craft, your medium so much that you would, you know, that you would do it for nothing. Mm You know, which is a constant thing, right? Like, if I'm, I'm fully dedicated to this. Like, I'm ride or die. I, there's nothing else that I could do, nothing else that I want to do. You know, so one of the business podcasts I listened to, they said, like, you know, well, the business only fails when you quit. Like, you go bankrupt, that's not necessarily a failure. Like, you could keep going through bankruptcy. Look at Trump. But, like, (laughs) you know, if you, you know, and your art, like, it fails when you quit. If you just keep going, even though you, you know, haven't booked a movie in a year or you haven't accomplished this, you haven't gotten your goal, but you keep going, you're still going.
0: What's the difference between a good interviewer and a great interviewer? Oh,
2: here you go. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I like short questions. I like being conversational. I like sentence questions or rather statement questions that just sort of put it out to people and let them get at it. I think that a good interviewer will write out a list of questions and go through them. A great interviewer will first understand that the real meat of it is gonna happen in the follow-ups. For one thing, I have a list of questions, but they're really more like question clusters. I don't think there's some particular set of words about the question about your mom that will unlock exactly what I want. But like, I would approach more like, let's talk about your mom. You know, and you say, I love my mom. I feel weird about my mom. I don't like my mom. Um, And then, so then the follow-up, like, why do you not like her? Or why do you love her? Or why do you avoid her? And then we're diving into the real issue. So I'm approaching it from the beginning of this first question. I'm just getting to this part of your mind. And then we can go deeper into your mind. And then we can go deeper. And, like, also paying super close attention to the person... The energy, their body language, like they are interested in this subject. They are no longer interested in this subject. Like, you know, I need to move on because I have exhausted this subject with them. Oh, look at that. Look, look at, oh, look. uh, uh, When I mentioned his brother, he like piped up. Like there's something there. Like dive, dive into that. For me, a big thing is asking them a question that I could not have thought to ask them before we sat down. And if you are really listening to the other person, then you may catch something that, and have like a real natural curiosity. You may catch something that's like, oh, that was interesting. And I couldn't have possibly known about that. I interviewed this one guy for Torre Show, David Williams, who is the second biggest money winner in poker, black money winner in poker history Mm -hmm. behind Phil Ivey. And I wanted to talk to him about poker. And we had a great, fruitful conversation about poker for about 40, 30, 40 minutes. And then he said something about his daughter and spending a lot of time with her. And I was kind of adding it up in my head of like, wait what you just said suggests that you don't have a babysitter. And he goes, no, we've never had a babysitter. And I'm like, wait a minute, you said you're a single parent and you're, you've never had a babysitter? And as a parent, this is like sending up red flags <laughs> to me of like, that means you're with your kid all the fucking time. Pick up, drop off every night. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, and we went into this awesome conversation of him and his journey as a single dad And uh, that was not anything that I had expected to be able to go into with him or plan to go into with him. But it was like, this is really interesting that you kind of put your poker life aside to really devote yourself to your daughter. And he talked about, um, you know, sort of trying to give his daughter what his mom had given him and that there was some day that he and his mom were working on some, I don't know, board game that was kind of intellectual that you kind of build, build, build and You know, it was kind of like, this is better for you than school, so fuck it, we'll skip school today to continue building this because this is what you really need. And, like, you know, it was just, like, that level of parenting of, like, you know, we will be totally focused on you and give you whatever you need. And it was really powerful. And it was, like, we are completely off the page. I have no questions here except what I'm coming to in the moment of bringing my own experience of, like, Well, if you are always with your child morning, noon and night or morning, afternoon and night, won't you get tired of your child sometimes and that (laughs) sort of thing? And, you know, just we're able to have a really fruitful discussion. And I I was really proud of the way that it sort of turned and changed.
0: Let me think just a a completely random question. Um, what, What are your thoughts on school?
2: I mean, it's important. You know, I mean, it's an interesting question because I went to a very vaunted private school from first to 12th grade, but my college, I really think I got more outside of the classroom than in the classroom. And I didn't finish my college education after the, during my third of, of four years. I was having this sort of intellectual crisis of like, what is the point of all this? And why are we doing this? And why do I need to finish it? I have three years of knowledge. Is four years really going to make the difference? And like, why do I need this piece of paper? And I think a lot of people were wondering that. I happened to be somebody who had a lot of friends who were administrators and uh, graduate students. I had in my... Second year, I had dated a medical student. So I had a lot of friends who were much older and in graduate school. And none of the older people, the administrators, the graduate students, could give me a clear reason why we were doing this exercise called college, this liberal arts education, why I needed to stay for four years. And I was like, well, wait a minute. If nobody can actually articulate why we're doing this, then why am I doing it? And... I left and came to New York and started to become a writer. And then after a few years, I, I said, I need to go to graduate school because I don't know everything there is. What happened, I did a story for The New Yorker about uh, a feature story for The New Yorker. And the editor kept saying like, well, the story needs more of this and it needs more of this. And it ended up not running. And I really didn't understand what, what he was talking about and what it needed. And it kind of scared me to be like, I want to be a writer and this editor is talking about stuff that I don't understand and I need to have that not happen again. So I was like, okay, I'll go to graduate school. So I, I got into Columbia. It was actually, it was, really, it was really bad. It was really bad because, you know, if you don't have a college degree, like you have to have like a special meeting of like, well, why should we take you? Cause this is a, one of the core requirements And they were super interested in me because I already had done a bunch of work in the field. I had already written little things for The New Yorker. I'd written a lot for Rolling Stone, for The Village Voice. So it's like he's clearly a committed writer and a professional writer, but he doesn't have this degree. So bad. I fell hard on the stereotype. I went in there in this meeting and I told him, well, you know... My sister and I were in college together and my parents were like, we don't have enough money, bullshit, for both of you to continue (laughs) in school. And I was like, well, she wants to be a doctor and she needs the school and I want to be a writer. I don't need the school, so I'll just leave and let her have that and the money. And they didn't question it. And I think that, yeah, like for many white people, they would have been like, really? But, like, for a black person saying, oh, my family didn't have enough money. And they were like, okay. And, like, <laughs> no question. You don't need to prove that. We accept that story on face value. And, I think, like I said, I think I fell on the stereotype. And they were like, okay. And then they were like, okay, fine. You can get in because you have dem- – largely because you have demonstrated yeah. proclivity in the field already. Um, <clears throat> and I got a lot out of that one year of graduate school. It was a two-year program. And uh, – In the spring of the first year, KRS-One let it be known That he was looking for writers to work on his autobiography And I had a meeting with him, it went great And he was like, so you want to do it? Let's do it And I was like, well, here's my chance to go pro I mean, we're here trying to get book deals and I have a book deal Like, why would I sit here in school? Like, especially because... Because he was like, you know, so we're going to do the first batch of interviews while I go on tour in Europe. And I was like, well, this sounds fantastic. So, yeah, we started in London and then we went to Switzerland and Germany and blah, blah, blah. And um, so, yeah, that was, we got a lot done on that tour.
0: Well, I think a, a lot of our guests that we've spoken to have a weird relationship with school because they they do feel like they learned the most from out from being in the field, yeah. from learning on the job. Yeah.
2: And I mean, I learned a ton writing for The Village Voice and sitting there with like Robert Criscow or Joe Levy or Ann Powers. I mean, like sitting with them, like, like very experienced editors and writers and sitting like shoulder to shoulder with them. They were sitting at the computer, and Robert Criscow was like the editor at the Village Voice. And he was very gruff, but he was brilliant, fucking genius. And he'd sit there, and he'd go, like, he'd be going through your shit, and he'd be like, you know, uh, this would sound better if this word was in front of this word, and this would sound— and you need a different word here. And he would just say that. You need a different word here. And then he would say nothing. And it's for you to suggest it, but at first he just he just goes silent. And I'm thinking like— Well, the genius is going to tell me what to do, but he's Mm. not going to tell you what to do. He's going to make you do it. And like, how about this? Like, oh, better, you know? And like, just going through it, like, inch by inch with an experienced writer was really, really powerful in terms of learning a lot.
0: That's a great way of teaching, to just allow you to form your own pathways in your brain rather than having it gifted to you.
2: Yes, but also... like walking step by step with somebody who's an experienced practitioner. I see your page and here's what I see. This verb could be stronger. This word doesn't belong there. This paragraph actually goes there. And when I saw what they did to my page, I could start to do that for myself and take my own stuff to another level without them. You know, but, but having them walk me through it, I think about like an intellectual exoskeleton, right? They like, they like show you, like, if you move like this, it's better. And then you get to be able to learn over time to do it yourself.
1: Yeah, I think the sign of a good teacher is someone who can show you how to do it, but then give you the confidence that you can then go and teach yourself going forward. Because when they're not there anymore, you're still going to need to learn things and get better. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Your early career, you started off at Rolling Stone as an intern,
0: right?
2: Uh, yes, I was interning at Rolling Stone, writing a little for the Village Voice and writing a little for The Source. The Rolling Stone internship program was not meant to build or create writers, but you know, I was like chatting up the writers and the editors and getting to know them. Like the village voice would come into the office and they're like, Oh, you wrote a little article. Whoa. And like the source would come by and like, Oh, you wrote a little article in the source. So they saw like, he's out there like trying. None of the other interns were getting bylines. And I'm talking like 300 word stories, but like, you know, from zero, it was like,
1: Holy shit, I wrote a story in this.
2: So that was sort of the beginning of it. And then they gave me a little record review and uh, they couldn't get rid of me after that.
0: How did you get yourself fired?
2: Ah, oh, that's a great question. Um, um, so when i was a when I was an intern at Rolling Stone, I would go to the other interns and say, like, she, like the intern boss, she wants you to answer this phone for the next half hour. She wants you to copy the stack of stuff, like photocopy. And so I'm just giving my work to another intern. And nobody ever said, let me check with her or no or bullshit or they'd all just okay like I think everyone was just so young and so green and so dying to please and like not make any waves that like they were just like sure 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 so I'm sort of not all my work but farming out my work to other
1: How many people did you have working for you at this point?
2: Not, (laughs) Not even that deep, but it'd just be like, you know, like I would carve out like a free hour or a free half hour here and there by like passing on my work to other people. So then I would take that free time and really try to meet the editors and the writers and get to know them and like be buddies with them. And I got fired because the big music writer Chris Mundy, he was like giving away like a like a ton of his music, right? Like you get tons of music sent to you, and after a while, you're like drowning in cassettes and CDs or whatever. I think it was definitely had to be CDs by then, and yeah, and like he's drowning in CDs. it's like you know just whatever you guys want, just come take my shit. So I'm over there like grabbing all the new and latest hip hop, and I remember I was walking around with my walk my disc man. Headphones delivering the mail. What's wrong with delivering the mail while listening to music on headphones at Rolling Stone magazine? But the art director did not like that, said something to somebody, and that got me fired as an intern, which is, like, so stupid. Mm. But I got him back. I got him back years later. Um, How's he getting back? So... Uh, well, just, okay, just to pin this story, <laughs> I'll tell you. It's been, so I got fired, but I had already had a relationship with the head of the editor, uh, the record review editor, Anthony DeCurtis. Mm. Anthony didn't give a shit that I get fired or whatever. None of that meant anything to him. So he gave me a record review, and then I was in the mix. Many years later, because I developed one of the main record review writers and then, you know, a feature writer and then a cover writer, a cover story writer. And like you're like fully part of the family. And I'm still part of the family. One of the longtime editors was leaving. And so there was a goodbye party at Elaine's, which was then the 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 media watering hole, right? For like that, that that boomer generation, Jimmy Breslin and Norman Mailer and those sort of people would go in there. And so it became, it was a big famous media what right? So we were having this goodbye party for this editor there. And it was like 30 or 40 people from different eras of Rolling Stone. And it's like, of course, you know, Tori has to be there as part of the family, whatever. And the editor the, the art director who got me fired was there, and he had gone on to Esquire, and he had done a shoot there with Chris Rock, where, among other things, he was portrayed wearing a noose. You know, and this is very—this is very, event becomes very— Boys Club, Elks Club, Roasty, kind of. People are like, you know, standing up, like, ah, ha, 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 like, I remember that time you fucked up my story, ah, ha, ha. So, you know, so I, so I, my turn to talk came and I <laughs> talked about the editor who was leaving some and then sort of somehow shifted to, and I remember. When I was an intern and you got me fired. Ha 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 ha. You know, because I delivered the mail with my headphones. Ha 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 ha. And then, and I saw what you did with Chris Rock and the noose. You're a fucking racist. Ah, I thought that was really funny. And I was not serious, serious, but I was kind of like, I'm fucking with you now. <laughs> and, um, you know, you fucking racist. Ha ah, ha ha. So after I'd be like, you fired me and then you put Chris Rock in a noose. And everyone's like, oh. you know, everybody's like three, drinks in, so there's like, you know, everybody's drunk and it's funny and it's fun. And I was kinda like, I'm not totally serious, but (laughs) tweaking you back. How did you get the confidence to
0: work for yourself and become the Torre brand, I guess?
2: I mean, it was never really a question of confidence. I mean, you know, nobody ever invited me to sit in their shop and be a full-time employee. I was a full time writer for Rolling Stone, but it was like, you're, you know, you work at home. There was never I didn't want to work in the office and it was never offered. And it was, so then I have this contract with Rolling Stone, but I got to do other things. I have other, I have time, but I also need more than that. So then in my twenties, it was you know, call as many magazines as you can and create as many relationships as you can and do as many stories as you can at one time. And it was very feast or famine-ish. It was like, now I have five assignments and three are due next week. And so I'm barely sleeping. And, you know, I would like sit at the computer, you know, wake up, go to the computer, write all day long, not do the dishes for three days, fall asleep at the computer, wake up. And like, you know, so getting three or four stories done. And then there's a week or two where there's really no stories to do. So I'm just pitching and thinking, conceiving. And it developed into like, okay, so I have like four or five places that I'm always writing in. And then like one other comes up here and there. And and when I get into my 30s, it became a little bit more of like, okay, add in a book project, add in a TV project you know, just sort of the sort of media production would grow, but it was nobody ever said, please come and sit in our office. I mean, well, MTV News, MTV News did. So that was an office job. So I was supposed to be there from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. So I did that for a while. It's not like I was, I mean, I was not asking for office jobs, but nobody was asking me to live in their office and like that never came up it's just I've got to have a portfolio of things going on all the time to have you know to have enough you anyway, know and I have time to do a variety of things so this is what I'm doing and this is the way it is to today I have three podcasts that I'm working on two books that I'm currently working on I just pitched a new little article today. There's a TV project that I'm trying to build. There's another audio project that may come together. So I mean it's just, you know, it's just always just like, you know, oh, oh and I'm starting I'm starting a new small business. I haven't really talked about this publicly yet. I mean by the time this comes out, it'll probably be in mode cuz I'm just now finishing the website. God, I want to start talking about this with you, then I really have to do it. Like, you know, like you get yeah, to yeah, like yeah. the point of no return. Like I have made a website, but it's not public yet. I have, I have a contract to do a podcast, but I haven't started doing it yet. So, I mean, I could just pull the plug and say, I'm just not going down that road at all. But once I fully describe it to you, then it's like, fuck, it's out there. I kind of have to Follow through. Um, <laughs> Let's go. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about about book coaching mm-hmm. and helping people develop their own books. You know, and this is not going to become the center of what I do. I'm, as I said, I'm working on two books and three podcasts, but I think I can provide a lot of help and value to a lot of other people because I've written eight books, right? only five got published, but even the ones that didn't get published, you still learn a lot doing them. And, you know, I felt like I can really be of service to a lot of people who are like working on a book, either they have a book deal or they don't have a book deal. They want a book deal, you know, you know, it's basically like, you know, get at me and we can talk about how to make your book better. Just even beginning to peck around in this world, I am shocked how many serious writers or known writers had a book coach helping them through their book. And it's not just like motivation, it's like tactics, it's editing, it's like, you know, like figuring out, like where are we, like, what's next? What is the next chapter supposed to look like? Whatever. Because your book editor is not really going to hold your hand and like help, They they kind of assume like, you know what you're doing and sometimes you don't and there's a lot of pressure you know there's a lot a lot riding on it you know and it makes a lot of sense to like get somebody who's like there with you and helping you and like making sure it's amazing so i'm going to be doing that and uh, within that i'm going to be starting to push out a lot of content around the notion of writing and becoming a better writer so there'll be a sort of instagram ongoing conversation about like, Hey guys, like think about this. I remember a while ago I got into an argument with somebody on Twitter, which was so fucking stupid, but it was like, I was like, you know, the core of writing, I think she said that like, you know, she loves adverbs and I was like, well, I believe, and I'm a lot more experienced than you (laughs) that and not, not not to throw shade, (laughs) but just like, let's be real. Right. That, uh, we should, pretty much avoid adverbs where possible and also be relatively light on adjectives. There's no absolutes, but for me, the core is the verbs, Mm -hmm. right? And like choosing the right verb. And if you need an adverb, maybe you need to think about finding the right verb to really give the sentence that musculature and that strength, that oomph and you know, just sort of ideas like that. Or, you know, I have this book about writing called About Writing by Samuel Delaney that like nobody talks about. There's a canon of great books about writing and people talk about Bird by Bird and, and and Stephen King's book, but nobody talks about Samuel Delaney's book. So, I mean, like talk about that. So I just feel like after 25 years of writing, I can give a lot of advice and ideas about how, what I think you should do, you know, is, even like in terms of like protecting your time. You know, a lot of people are like, how do I have time for writing? If I made a meeting with you, you're going to meet with Toure for an hour. And your girlfriend or your buddy called and said, hey, like, let's go. Like, well, I'm I'm meeting with Toure. Like, mm. I'll catch up with you after that, you know. But if you're sitting with your computer or better yet, your legal pad, because I do everything longhand here in my books, you might, somebody, the phone rings. and You're like, oh, hey, how you doing? And. Might you say, what are you doing? Nothing. Like, you're in a meeting with you. But for a lot of people, that's not important enough to not take any interruptions. That has to be so important that, like, no, nothing can interrupt this meeting that I'm having by myself, with myself, with my book, my characters. That is super important. So, I mean, like, if that is not super important to you, then no, you're not ever going to get it done. So just sort of ideas about writing, motivation, tactics, all sorts of things. We sort of be talking about that, you know, IG, blog, podcast. And, like, you know, if you want even more, come get at me and I'll work with you on your book. I think it'll be really interesting. I mean, like, I love writing. I love writers. I I find myself just writing down notes for things that I want to talk about. And I'm like, oh my God, like I could just talk about this all day long. I think a lot about like, cause I've been writing this other book. And one of the things that I have to do is keep challenging myself to be vulnerable, be more vulnerable, like tell them everything. Like, to, and if you're scared to tell them something, fuck. You. I remember a writer came to me once and she talked to me about, um, about how she had masturbated in church, right? And like, we're talking about like Southern Texas Baptist church, like heavy shit. (laughs) And she's like, should I write about that? I'm scared. And I'm like, if you're scared to write about it, definitely write about it, you know? And if you can have that separation between like the personal, like the writer you who is greedy and like grabbing for like every part and sort of subject and word that you can get and the personal you who's, you know, has the mask and doesn't want to be embarrassed. And God, there was one time I was doing a Rolling Stone feature on D'Angelo. It was not my first feature on him and I knew Quest Love. And so I was like a little more in the crew than normally when you enter, you're kind of a stranger and they're like, okay, like, you know, we'll see you after the show or whatever. But like, I kind of knew them a little bit. They were kind of like letting me in a little bit more. of the time, the band kicks you out before the show starts, right? So you don't get to see the before show ritual. But this time, they were like, he's cool, let him hang. And I happened to be standing next to D'Angelo when they were like, okay, let's rally up for a prayer. So then when we went into the prayer, where we're all holding hands, I am holding hands with D'Angelo. And feeling for a good two minutes what it's like to hold hands with him. And I went home and I was like, so many people experienced him, experience him romantically and sexually, and they would love to hold hands with him, and you did that. So you could start the story with an intimate, detailed, lengthy discussion, like microscopic discussion of what it feels like to hold his hand. And that is something that no other writer will probably ever be able to do. Yeah. At that point, You know, this sort of battle internally was already won. The writer self is going to win that battle over the personal self in me every time. But the personal self was definitely like, people might think you're gay if you're going on and on about what it's like to hold hands with D'Angelo. And the writer self was like, well, that may be. But this will be an incredibly memorable intro that nobody else will be able to do. So we have to do it, and the fact that you are scared about it for some reason means that. Like, well, then the discussion is over. We have to do it.
0: That's really interesting, considering a large number of your audiences from the hip hop community, which seems to be like homophobia within that community is even still huge, which is crazy to say. In I don't know 2019. You know, I, mean,
2: I don't know. I I don't know. I, I hear. Maybe um, my ear is dead to it, but like I, I hear less flimsy homophobia in rap lyrics. I remember the coming out of Frank Ocean. Uh, yeah. People were welcoming, yeah. accepting, cool about it. He's not stigmatized. Now he is an artist that is different. Yeah. I think that an openness to being gay has developed. I think the hip hop community is much more open than it used to be on that particular issue. But we've been forward on so many issues. I mean, in the 80s and the 90s, we were talking about wear a condom, wear a condom. I mean, like rock and roll was not talking about that. Yeah. And it wasn't even, there were songs made about it, but there were quite often it was just just a blip in a song about something. A lot of rap songs are about nothing, right? Like it's just, I did this and then I did this and then then this happened. Sometimes it's a bunch of non sequiturs. And within that you get like, and wear a condom now. (laughs) Some of that was rooted in misogyny and like we can't trust women, you know, and you never know what a woman's really doing or who she's really with. So that is problematic, but at the height of AIDS, Hip hop was definitely out there banging a gong about like, wear a condom, wear your hat.
0: It's Jimmy. It's
2: Jimmy. <laughs> Hell yeah.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And the, the misogyny, because I, I was thinking earlier when you were, it reminded me of that Chris Rock bit where he talks about how I can break down how Run DMC is art, but I have a tough time defending from the window to the wall. So the sweat drips from my <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, um yeah, yeah, the rappers don't make it easy for, um, well, certain rappers don't make it easy for, for, and especially with the misogyny and stuff.
2: Yes, so true. I
0: wanted to ask you about your, your podcast. Are there any um, common traits that you're noticing through the successful people other than the, the just keep going?
2: Well, just sort of the notion of knowing yourself leading toward success, of caring deeply about your field to where, like we said, you would do it for pennies. Um, You know, you would do it in a snowstorm. A lot of people talk about having a great morning and really using the morning to propel themselves into the day, like getting their armor for the day out of the morning. Tiffany Haddish was really strong on that particular issue when she talked about like looking herself in the eyes in the mirror and giving herself that pep talk and like, you know, liver, you're doing a great job and lungs, you're doing a great job and heart, thank you. And, and talking about you are enough. Just giving herself all this positive energy is really valuable, you know, and that sort just as a, it's hard to replicate that when you have kids who got to go to school and you're like freaking like tired and dragging yourself out of bed to get them, you know, get dressed, put on your fucking shoes.
0: But you do try, is that something you try and do in your own life?
2: Yes. I, I, I try, I generally do wake up with a positive message and a positive feeling of like, you know, go get them and you can do it. And like, you know, it's going to be a good day and like, you know, I really, you know, it's an, it's an opportunity to like, you know, do something. And, de- you know, I don't stare at myself in the mirror, although I, I definitely talk positively to myself.
0: I thought the, I thought the Tiffany episode was, uh, was fantastic because I think it's, it's easier to talk to yourself positively when you are successful. Mm. Um, but she obviously talks about kind of being homeless and living in the car and, and coming through I guess it's um i I would definitely recommend people check out that episode of the to show with with mm-hmm. Tiffany haddish I feel like there's there almost needs to be not a delusion but just this this sense of self and belief of future achievement when no one else is rooting for you
2: yeah I mean you know you you, you got to believe in yourself when I was still at Rolling Stone but toward the end of my time at Rolling Stone right because I told you my first Feature was on Run DMC right that was their comeback album but still um one of my later features was on Kanye right his first album and so they said okay go to Jersey to his apartment hang out with him for a day and I get to the apartment and he's like still getting dressed It's like which polo shirt ah, and like took him like an hour to get <laughs> dressed, to finish getting dressed while I'm like waiting for him. So I'm like walking around the apartment. It wasn't that big. And there was a gigantic poster of Kanye on one of the walls, right? Where he's like in performance. And I'm like, what? And so when he finally came out all in polo, it was like, so why do you have a poster of you on the wall in your house? And he said, well, I have to cheer for me before anyone else can cheer for me. I am not encouraging anyone listening, this to, listening to this to actually put a poster of yourself on the wall. But to have that level of belief in yourself is important. Mm-hmm. And nobody is ever going to believe in you more than you. Maybe if you're lucky, your mom will believe in you more than you. But outside of that, like, if you don't believe in you and your capabilities and your product 100%, then you have nothing. I just believe, and it started with my parents, but it also sort of flowered for me, like like I can, I can do it, like I can find a way. Like mm-hmm. I would be in a car that is tipping on the edge of the cliff, that it's about to fall off, and I'm thinking I can find a way out of this. Mm-hmm. You know, like it doesn't matter, you know, you pile a bunch of shit on me and I'm like, Okay, I'll find a way out of it. And, you know, that's who I am. And that's what I would want for everybody to just believe in your, even when you're backed into a corner, find that way to believe in yourself. And also remember that emotions come and go. So if you feel like things are dire, just if you can have that, overriding sense of this emotion will pass. Because I mean, I I have this sense of determination that sort of kicks in apart from me manually starting it. In the rare moments when it's not there, I can somehow kind of access a notion of like, it will restart. Just like you know it's not gonna rain forever. Mm -hmm. Like I won't go to the store now because it's raining, but I know it will stop raining at some point. Like, and if you know, like this moment of a lack of confidence or self-doubt will pass, just like the clouds will pass. And then I can get back to like, okay, come on. Like, let's let's do it. Just motivating yourself in your in a way that is authentic to you, you know, like I can do it, like, and really believing that you can do it. And it's easier said than done, but you you can develop a a habit Of confidence rather than a habit of self-doubt. I actually did this partly manually when I was in my 20s. I noticed an occasional negative voice in the head. I'm pretty positive self-talker and that's one thing that I've seen from a lot of people when I ask them about their self-talk. They're like I'm very try to be very positive with my self-talk. But I noticed some negative self-talk creeping in sometimes. I would pinch myself on the back of the neck really hard like come on you have to we can't like flake out of it like you have to do it so it's painful so that you know to do that Pavlovian thing of like when I have a negative thought I follow it with pain and it helped sort of push that out I am very positive in terms of my thoughts about myself and can I accomplish something? Can I do something? And like, I, yes. And, you know, and the thoughts running through me are very positive about like I can, I can, I can. And, um, I would wish that on everybody.
0: So how do people learn how to be unapologetically themselves? Cause mm. I think that's something that that you're really good at and, it came to me when I was uh, listening to you interviewing Rakim mm-hmm. um, and he was talking about how uh, in the early days, Marley Marl was trying to hype him up to be like mm. a real kind of party rapper and thank God he didn't listen. And he he knew that his true voice was the Rakim that we, that we hear on record. Yeah.
2: yeah. Wow, that is a great question. It's interesting because for me, being my authentic self has usually been fairly political and politicized. You know, I went to this very white private school in high school. So just to show up as me and bring in black culture or whatever, like that becomes very politicized. And there's a mission of like, you have to, like you... You are here to inject yourself and real black culture into this world and not not to assimilate or lose who you are because you've gone into this world, but like bring yourself. So it was sort of, there was a mission to like be yourself in this situation, which may or may not want that. I have insisted on maintaining that throughout my life because the notion of, changing to fit what will be more palatable for the white people around you is disgusting and will cause a deep sense of guilt and shame in me. There's been different moments in my, a couple of moments in my professional career, not that many because of the level of shame that comes when somebody said something and I was like, I should have said something. I should have responded to that you can't say that or here's the actual facts or whatever whatever the and I didn't say it for whatever reason because I was afraid of whatever and then I feel ashamed for not having you didn't say you didn't you didn't keep it real mm-hmm. that trained me to be like you know I got to I got to speak my truth I got to say what I really feel it doesn't matter that you know that you know I remember One job where I was the only black person on the team and it was Black History Month and we were being tasked with doing, you know, more for Black History Month. And the person who was delivering this message was mocking the message as they were delivering it, which I found offensive. And then that was followed up by somebody else saying, what about White History Month? And I was like, you know, and I had already... Deeply ingrained of, like, I'm not going to be silent in that moment. I would feel guilty and ashamed the rest of the day that I didn't say anything. And i not wearing that the rest of the day. You know, so, I am, of course, I'm going to be like, you know, that's every month, you know. And, like, you know, the group did not appreciate my comment. And I had to just accept that because I, I'm not going to back up because it makes you feel more comfortable. So then I have to feel uncomfortable for you to feel comfortable. That's not how I'm playing the game. I mean, for young black and brown people who want to move in in these professional white-dominated spaces, you don't want to make everyone around you feel racist, right? If you're constantly telling white people or making them feel like they are racist, like, well, they will not want you to be around, right? But, like, there is... There, I mean, and this is one of the great fears that most white people have, right? Of being called or feeling like they are racist, right? We don't want to go that far unless it's warranted and called for, right? I'm, I'm not never pulling out that card, but you know, I have to really know what I'm talking about. But to really be able to, you know, bring yourself to the moment, like your real self to the moment, This does not mean be stupid. I I remember giving a talk once and this kid was like, yeah, I want to work in a Fortune 500 and I'm going to, you know, bop through the office. And I was like, well, you know, just one thing, just there is a certain amount of code switching that is of some value because your particular way of walking gets no value. There's no social capital that you're going to gain i walking through the office, you know, with your like, l- you know, practiced limp, you know, you know, your cool <laughs> walk. So, uh, you know, so there's a balance and I'm not saying that, you know, you want to like stiffen up, you know, like when Dave Chappelle pretends to be a white man and he's like, like a robot, like, but you know, like if you, you know, if you roll up one pant leg on your suit, you look like a fool, right? Where opposed <laughs> to in Brooklyn, it like looks cool. Nobody does that anymore, but like. So you have to be intelligent. You have to be aware, aware of where you are. But like when I think about Oprah and Obama and a couple other people, like you're talking about, like you know Denzel, like extraordinary code switchers, right? Who who know like when to access what part of their personality and they're being authentic. And I wouldn't say Obama is being an Oreo or Oprah's being an Oreo, but she understands. In this moment, I'm gonna give you this voice and make make Becky feel very comfortable. And in this moment, I'm gonna give you this other little reference, this other little voice. And Keisha will be like, that's my girl, right? (laughs) And now I've won over everybody, right? Obama is great at that, right? And so now I've won over everybody. I am fluent in all the languages. That's what I'm talking about. If you are going forward with just one language, one cultural language you are limiting yourself when you talk to your grandmother or you talk to your little niece you are still you but you are a little different you haven't sold out you have just modulated for the audience you're talking to your friends would recognize you but they would also recognize oh he softened his tone because he's talking to his grandmother or his niece or whatever and it's just like that. Like I'm still showing up as myself, but I am aware, you know, over here, this is going to help me win. And over here, this is going to help me win.
0: I think that with your podcast, you're helping a bunch of people. I, I, and one thing I wanted to mention as well because I didn't mention it earlier was that although you're you're giving a, a platform to, to black voices you encourage white people to come and listen to it it's not it's not exclusive it's right. like inclusive which which is great so um, and I've certainly learned a lot from listening to your podcast we want to
2: we I want to talk about black people's journeys and, and and spotlight them but not in a way where we're just talking about blackness on this level that white people are like what are they talking about
0: yeah yeah, yeah it's super accessible it's, it's a great show I really love it. and um in a similar vein this podcast is is trying to help people um creative creatives kind of have a lot that uh holds them back i think so is there any advice that you could impart it can be anything blanks blank slate but uh, just something that um you think creatives need to need to work on or that you think could help them
2: i mean just one thing that helps me i don't have sort of a general critique of creatives in general, but I don't believe in like clinging to ideas. And I mean like, like literally holding it in your short term memory, right? Like I'm sitting here with two notebooks in front of me. So if a thought comes up, something I want to do, remember, I will write it down immediately. So that allows the short term memory to be, Relatively clear and open. I'm not. There's a finite amount of space there. So if I'm trying to remember, remember to go to the store, or work on your podcast, or you know, at one point I want to write a TV show, whatever. If I'm clinging to that, then there's you're spending the energy to hold on to it. You don't have the the freedom to think new thoughts. So I want to just just write down everything. So you clear out the mind and the mind is open for new thoughts, you know, and some of them will be shit and some of them will be great. But like if it's open, then you have room for that thought flow. If you are like clinging to like remember to go to the store, don't forget to go to the store, then you're not able to to do that. You're not able to have the clarity of mind. So I'm just I carry this. I have like the small moleskin day book. I don't even worry about the actual date. I carry this everywhere and I just write down everything so that it's the thoughts are going into here and then the actual mind can stay clear.
0: I noticed you writing while we were talking. What what did you write down?
2: You mentioned the Billie Eilish song that I had not heard of. I got to, you know, work on the email for the website that I'm building. I got to... just, you know, I got to work on somebody else who I want on my show. Just, 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 you know, some are housekeeping, some are bigger creative things. Just letting your short term memory, your front of brain be clear and open.
0: It's great advice. I do the same thing, especially when I'm listening to podcasts. I take notes because although I'm utterly confident that I'm going to remember whatever mm. interesting mm. nugget I never ever do. No. So I've started to realize you're not ever going to remember that. Stop the pause the podcast right now and go and write it down. That's yeah. what I've started doing. I don't
2: want to I don't want to ask myself to remember anything. I want to store it on paper and keep the mind
0: open. Where can people find you online?
2: Instagram is tore show, Twitter is tore t o u r e. Um so that's the crux of it. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so
0: much. Thank you. you thanks for listening we're trying to help a lot of people with this show so we need your help to grow the community and spread
1: our message if you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today or they just need a little nudge in the right direction pass this podcast on to them if you want to hear more then subscribe
0: to us on itunes and if we helped you with anything we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an itunes review it makes a huge difference
1: see ya